Uh, hello, everybody. How are you doing today? Today is, uh, let's see, today is October the 8th. It's a Wednesday. You know what that means. It's 1 p.m. Washington, D.C. time. My name is Lou Thomas. This is episode 107 of the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Thank you very much for joining me on this glorious day. The weather here is nice. You can't quite see at the back. It just looks like a bunch of light, but it's a beautiful fall day. Fall, Luke Thomas' favorite season of the year. Uh, today on the live chat, Rory McDonald will, of course, get to um, his fantastic win over Tarek Safadine. There was the Rick Story Gunnar Nelson bout. We will also get to that. There was, of course, um, a lot of hullabahoo Worst word in the English language, but I just used it, about Kung Lee's HGH test when he fought Michael Bisping over in Macau, China, and a host of other topics that will be defined strictly by you. You want me to talk about it? You want to talk about it yourself? You want to challenge something? You want to bring up something? This is your chance. Get on MMAfighting.com right now, and in the comment section where this window is embedded if you're watching on uh, YouTube, um, that's where all the questions will probably come from. But you may also get at me on Twitter, at SBN. Luke Thomas, uh, and use the hashtag chat rappers. I'll get to it there. And you can, of course, always email me at luke.thomas at gmail.com. A couple of requests. Please subscribe on iTunes. We are there. You can uh, also spread the word about iTunes whenever you hear this sound. And this is the unofficial. Uh, if you can't, if you're on the audio recording, it's Die Dr. Pepper. Is it? Yeah. Whenever you hear that sound, that means get on social media, whatever your preferred version of it may be, preferably Twitter and Facebook. And let folks know that you are watching this live chat right now. Uh, I had folks tell me that the um, the uh, chat last week sounded much better. It's because they used a different recording device rather than this one I, I normally use. The microphone now should sound really good. So uh, let's do this, y'all. It's an exciting Wednesday. A couple minutes late, but nevertheless, uh, I'll get to the things I normally get to. So there we go. All right. Let's get the sucker going, huh? All right, please, computer, don't crash on me now. All right, first question. Man, fighter pay is always an issue, isn't it? Um, discretionary bonuses. How much do fighters actually get from discretionary bonuses? I saw a thread on the underground where fighters came out saying it ranges from 1 to 5K. Whenever Dana speaks of these discretionary bonuses, it seems like it's a life-changing uh, amount of money, but it's not even close to the um, fight night bonuses, sort of fight of the night, performs of the night, in terms of payout, right? Well, certainly it's not anymore. I mean, I, I think they used to be bigger, um, and certainly for some fighters, it'd be crazy big. The most I've ever heard of was 10K, but, you know, it's not like I've surveyed all the major fighters. Hey, how much discretionary bonus money have you ever had? It's not something I've ever really done in any kind of scientific way, so take that with a grain of salt. But yeah, I have heard two things. One, I've heard that they've declined in how often guys get them, and I've heard that the, the, the amount of them has also declined. But again, it's also not particularly scientific, although I could say on the two latter points that that I've heard a number of times. Um, of the night bonuses, how much do fighters actually see from their 50K bonuses? Does the UFC cover tax so the fighter takes home 50K bonus? No, all that money is untaxed. In fact, all, all the money they make from the UFC is untaxed. When I get paid, um, uh, I've worked for various different MMA organizations in the past, some, some local ones like UWC. When I would get paid, it would not be including taxes. I would have to declare that and save money along the way so that when the tax man came, I had money to pay him. So you can imagine how that could be a bit of a hairy situation with fighters. Chris Lieben being chief among them. But, you know, your employer has a right to tell you he pays you 80K, that the government takes money out of it, or that you spend it on new Nikes, or whatever the case may be, is, is, is irrelevant. They are giving you that money, but, you know, in the end, 
we all have to contribute to society, don't we? Uh, also, though, the taxes could vary. You know, so part of the reason why Manny Pacquiao has been fighting in Macau a little bit is because the tax, he first of all, broke. But the other part is that they tax him less. When he comes over here, he gets taxed a lot as well. Sam Capital on the Insiders podcast this week explained that a lot of the European fighters have to get paid in creative ways because when they come over here, they get heavily, heavily taxed. By the way, also, if my wife is watching, I have my mug. Um, so, yeah, so listen, that's a part of life. And, and financial responsibility is put upon the fighters, which, as you can imagine, can be a difficult situation to, to properly manage. Just knowing how young men work. Pardon me. Um, all right. Has the UFC not learned their lesson from UFC 176? With UFC 179 coming up, do you think it's ridiculous that the UFC would put on such a bad pay-per-view main card with an injury-prone Aldo as the main event again? He was the reason 176 was canceled in the first place. And the lack of big money name fighters or fighters on the car. Same thing with 179 in two weeks. Um, let me pull up the 179 card just so I don't speak from a position of complete ignorance. All right, so a couple of issues to unpack here that you're, that you're basically getting at. So Aldo Mendez 2 is October 25th. So basically three weeks, right? Yeah, roughly three weeks. Uh, it's going to be in Rio de Janeiro, Rio de Janeiro. It's headlined by Jose Aldo versus Chad Mendes. Also features a uh, host of other Brazilian fighters. Co-main event is Clover Teixeira versus Phil Davis. So, a few things. Number one, um, Aldo is not necessarily the biggest draw in the world here um, in the United States or Canada, but is a pretty, I'm told, is a pretty good draw in Brazil. So, that's the first. The second part is, um, we already kind of knew this. They had explained it explicitly, but... There was an article that came out this week in the Sports Business Journal. Sports Business Journal is sort of like the Wall Street Journal full of, of sports. It covers the business end of things from a very professional side. And most of their content, certainly the best of their content, exists behind a paywall. If you look at the average readership of the SBJ, it's you know well into the six figures. It's for executives and agents and really the people who are on the higher end of the business structure of the sporting world, be that in the television side or the management side or the ownership side. That's who reads Sports Business Journal. Anyway, they had a big, long article about the UFC's pay-per-view woes. Now, the whole article was not doom and gloom. I certainly do not wish to paint it as such, although there was some fair amount of attention paid to some of the pay-per-view struggles that they've had. But again, one of the things, and then by the way, Dana White was quoted one time in the article. It was really Lorenzo Fertitta and uh, I believe Lawrence Epstein and maybe... Jamie Pollock talking. I could be wrong about Pollock, but whatever the case, it's mostly Lorenzo Fertitta talking. And what Fertitta basically argued was, listen, when we first went to Fox, we were just kind of doing shows by the seat of our pants, which is to say we were just sort of feeling out, hey, what would be good on this FS or FX card, is how it initially was, and what would be good on this Fox card, and what would be good on this pay-per-view, and what they basically figured out what they needed was that's not the right way to do it. It was an unbalanced way of doing things. And so what they said was they set out some basic ground rules for what shows were going to be in, in terms of how the talent was structured. One of the rules that they came into to play was that, listen, you know, uh, there'll be exceptions, but championship fights should be on pay-per-view, and they should headline cards. That was sort of a rule that they wanted for themselves, an establishment that when you know you were buying pay-per-view, I mean, maybe not. There may be some, you know, circumstance. Let's say if Lesnar comes back, they're probably going to want to put him in a main event role at some point, right? Even before he 
ever contends for a title if he does. Um, but you get the idea. Basically speaking, they wanted it to be title fights, and they wanted sort of contender fights to headline the fight night cards. You know, somewhere between you know guys who are between three and eight and three and ten. That, that, that ranked anyway. And those rankings that they come up with help them define how they feature talent on those fight night cards. As flawed as those rankings may be, they serve a function in that capacity. So, so that's sort of what happens here. And when you sort of take a step back and you say, okay, Aldo has to defend this title. Mendez is the guy. This fight was already canceled, but now they've moved it to a place where Aldo's drawing power is much more considerable. Title fights have to headline. Um, they have to keep pay-per-view going. They've already committed to a certain amount for the year. So when you sort of analyze those considerations, it becomes very easy to understand why Aldo would be the guy headlining in this particular position. To your point, though, I don't think it's necessarily misplaced. There is a, a, a concern that is it Aldo injury-prone? Isn't this a guy who has a demonstrated history of not being able to even make it to the weigh-ins due to any number of factors related to his ability to maintain his health? There's no argument against it. Yet, doesn't this guy have to defend his title? And so your point may be, well, what about putting that guy in a co-main event role? They simply don't have the roster to do that, nor do they wish to have that kind of structure. They believe, I think wrongly, but they believe that having that title fight should be the, should be the, the crown jewel, should be the centerpiece of their shows. I would submit to you that that is a recipe for disaster once the, uh, if they can continue to expand into the lighter side of the men's weight, so 115, 105, straw weight, atom weight. And I think it will definitely be a disaster if they want to headline a pay-per-view with a women's fight with, at 115, which isn't to say that those women aren't deserving of respect. We're just sort of reading the tea leaves about what kind of economic and financial opportunities are there. That's going to be difficult to do. But that, so I, you know, I understand some of your points. The other one, though, is that you, know, you ask why isn't these cards more stacked, and we can get into a, a different debate about it all. But long story short, they simply don't have the roster to accommodate it in, in that particular way. So why is he there? It has to be. That's the way they sort of structure their cards. There is some reason to believe it'll be better in Brazil. You get the idea. That's why. And then he follows up with saying, you would think they would at least put a McCall Lineker on pay-per-view considering it's a flyweight contender's bout, or Shogun Manoa, which is a pretty violent fight, would be great for the Brazilian pay-per-view, but no, they put both those on FS1. They got a lot of masters to serve. They got to serve Fight Pass to their own needs. They have to service the Ultimate Fighter. They have to service... Um, pay-per-view. They have to service all the sort of geographic places that they want to, you know, keep irons in the fire, and this this makes demands on them. Uh, I agree for a pay-per-view event, it would be much better from the customer's perspective, but this is where I would say again, if you like UFC 179, you should absolutely buy it. If it doesn't interest you, perhaps save your money for the next one, or, or the next ticket when they come to town, or whatever you want to use that money for. Um, but if you like something, vote. If you don't like something, vote. That's what I always tell you. Like it, dislike it, hate it, love it. Always, as a consumer, give the company that you typically... I mean, we all would say, anyone who's watching this likes UFC. The issue is not whether you like or don't like, but you may not like individual events or the way things are structured or whatever the case may be. If you do, vote. If you don't, vote. But don't just sort of become flotsam and jetsam in the stream of how things are done. Have an active, participatory role, because we all know UFC responds very strongly to consumer demand. Someone asks, what is the most underlies offensive technique in MMA right now? Um, and 
but my wife is killing me right now. All right, uh, and someone says, I was going to say knees to the ground, knees to the body of a grounded opponent. Yes, uh, which, by the way, we saw some this past weekend. Who was it? Who fought uh, Tor Trang? Um, God, I can't even remember now. But I hadn't covered that card. Oh, was it, um, what was his name? God, I can't remember now, man. It's been not even four days, five days, and I can't even remember. Uh, yeah, Christoph Jotko. There you go. He was doing it. There's a bit of a problem with it. I would say that, you know, it's hard to maintain um, some side control pressure when um, you don't have your knee there to block the hip a little bit. But if they're turtling and they're against the fence and you know you can't knee them in the face, hit them with the rib roasters. That's a particularly important one. I would make a point here, though. I would make a point and say, okay, knees to the bottom grounded opponent. something I'm sort of known for loving. And that seems to be in short supply. But I would add a couple other things. I would say that one, one of the things I enjoy about MMA is that, um, you know, you, you watch the sport for 10 years and a lot of things change. And some things don't. And so some of that gets a little bit boring. But what I would say is the technical development, we are still, I would still submit to you in pretty early stages. There's a lot of things that have been left undone that have a great potential. I think use of the cage. I think that... So what I mean by that is I mean like uh, all manner of things. It used to be that Couture was one of the first guys who would, you know, if he couldn't cut the corner on a double, he would run you into the cage so that you would bounce back. And when you bounced back, he'd pick you up and slam you. Uh, BJ Penn was another guy who used to like to do that. At least uh, he wrote about it in his book. But Couture for sure has a, has a bit of a history doing that. I think he did it to Liddell in their first fight. So, and maybe Ortiz as well. So I think there's that. I think that um, that's one thing. And also, when I say use of the cage, I also mean, for example, Anthony Pettis jumping off the cage and doing the Showtime kick. Alan Belcher doing the same thing. Jose Aldo doing the Superman punch off of it. So those kinds of things I also enjoy as well. Um, so use of the cage. I would submit to you that there's going to be a return to wrestling. And I'm a big believer in this. I think that you want to see someone who's a great wrestler today. Look at someone who doesn't use the cage. Or at least doesn't use the cage very often. MMA wrestling takedown defense against the cage has gotten excellent. People are very good at it. And even if you get someone down, they pop right back up right away. I would submit to you that the best wrestlers in MMA today, none of them really shy away from using the cage. You have to do it. And as you climb the ranks, the guys before the UFC, guys at Cage Rage or other cages, I'm sorry, Cage, um, cage Fury or you know, any sort of local show, they're going to succumb to you when you use the cage. So it's a technique you should learn. But at the highest level, it's guys who can create takedowns and hold position in open space. That, to me, really is the key. Chris Weidman is good at that. Daniel Cormier is good at that. Daniel Cormier is good at that above and below the waist. Um, those kinds of things, uh, um, Ben Askren is good at that. That, to me, is a really underutilized thing. I see a lot of guys regressing to what I would say is basically lazy at this point and kind of counterproductive. They put a ton of energy into wrestling guys against the cage, who have very good takedown defense. They have found a way to make the wall work for them. Okay, guys, let's change it up. Let's try something different. Guys who have better level changing. Dominic Cruz. Look at Dominic Cruz. He doesn't need to use that cage at all. Now, he, again, he has in the past, but you get the idea. That takedown he hit on Takeo Mizugaki, genius, doesn't need it at all. Sets everything up in open space. In fact, sort of requires open space 
to make those takedowns work, right? So to me, that's something that's really underutilized. And I would say also that, um, again, I mentioned it on MMA Beat, I mentioned it on this chat, I think some of the insights about Conor McGregor and the free-flowing style of striking that he has, I don't mean that people will borrow exactly from him, but I still think that there are adaptations to making striking. I still think we haven't quite come um, very far in, in terms of creating different styles that meet certain biological differences, or I should say physiological differences, um, and or are, are different than the norm. I think we have some of that. I think Conor McGregor has leading the charge in that respect, but we really haven't quite gotten very far with it. Um, in terms of submissions, I don't know, like blending of what happens with Sambo and everything else. I, I don't really know what to say about that. Um, I don't know enough about Sambo to make an educated um, opinion. I would say certainly sport jiu-jitsu and um, MMA jiu-jitsu are diverging and not converging, but that's sort of a well-known thing. But maybe there's a way to bring them back together. I don't know. So there's lots of things, I think, in terms of technical adaptations and development that are there for you. So you're kind of asking, well, what about this technique? Or what about that technique? Yeah, sure, knees to the head of a, uh, knees to the body of a grounded opponent is, is underutilized. Maybe Kat Zingano's use of the front headlock, both for snap downs and for um, sort of uh, sacrifice throw takedowns. All, all those things, yeah, that's really underutilized. But it's not about one technique or the other, it's about where that technique comes from. What is the insight that that person is using to then launch into that technique? Techniques are not a random series of movements. It's just physics. And beyond the physics of it is the tactics of it. What is somebody doing? Why are they doing it? How many people are doing it? How can we solve for that? It's essentially what the answer is here. So it's not like X movement with your knee or Y movement with your closed fist. It's what, are, it's what technique talk, that series I do is all about. What are people doing? Why? and what's next. Either what's good about it, what's wrong with it, and what's next. That's sort of, it's technique theory. That, that to me is the most important one. And maybe Katzengana realized she could do a lot. Maybe she can't level change into people because they're good about getting the forearms up or their heart, you know, they, they clinch well and they get their hips back. But maybe they're really good about giving up the, the, the front headlock and there's lots you can do. The snap down, the throw over, all kinds of crazy stuff. Metamorris, what's your favorite matchup on the Metamorris card? Let's see. Uh, probably the main event because, you know, uh, I mean, Sakuraba versus Henzo is pretty great. All right, so the Sakuraba-Henzo, there's a secret match. We'll see what ends up with that. Vinny versus Kevin Casey, I don't care about Harley at all. I, I suspect Vinny will smoke him. Um, you know what? I'll tell you what my favorite one is. Gary Tona versus Zach Maxwell will be good, but not my favorite. Rory McDonald versus JT Torres should be interesting, but not my favorite. Here's my favorite, and I'm assuming it's going to be Nogi. Did you all see the Nogi World Championships? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. They were on Sunday, black belts. Um, the guy who won the whole thing in his division and in absolute was Yuri Samoas. 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 I, I can't pronounce his last name properly. I watched him. And in the main, dude, he looked amazing all weekend, first of all. And in the absolute finals, he beat Keenan Cornelius. Kenny Cornelius, I don't think, even got an advantage against him, much less a point. Samoys looked incredible. Incredible. Incredible guard retention, athletic, quick, um, brilliant defense of the pass, great takedowns, uh, great ability to get to the back. Um, he just looked phenomenal. And he's going to go up against Rafael Lovato, who 
has been a little more focused on MMA. It's a no-gi context. Uh, it's going to be interesting. That to me. Because look out, look out for Yuri Samoyes. That guy was, he took my breath away on Sunday with how good he was. There was like nothing in his game that was flawed. There was nothing. He could do, he could do everything. He was good at everything. Um, I, was, I was blown away by him. So that to me, uh, Lovato, one of the, if not, probably the most decorated American today, although, you know, uh, Keenan is nipping at his heels. But Keenan had, I mean, I won't say he had nothing for Yuri. He was trying very, very hard. Got close a lot of times, but, you know, it just doesn't count, man. Yuri was, Yuri was incredible. Incredible in that, in that whole tournament. And, and I was surprised. I thought, you know, Keenan sometimes gets started a little slow and then builds and builds and always seems to have like a rabbit in his hat. You saw that in both, uh, in both the Morillo-Santana matches, both at the Worlds and the Gi and then this one. In the, in the Worlds, he had the worm guard that saved him from just getting absolutely crushed under um, Morillo-Santana's passing style. And then, in this one, um, you know, Keenan mentioned he used to wrestle. People don't realize that. And then, and then he finally he couldn't do much to, to um, Murillo. In fact, Murillo was up 3-2 to two on advantages. But then out of nowhere, Keenan pulled out a double leg takedown. Yeah, none of that worked on Yuri. Yuri shut down everything. I was, I was amazed. I was truly amazed. So, Yuri Samoyes versus uh, Samoes. Again, I don't hate pronounce it properly. But him versus Rafael Lovato. Or Rafael, excuse me. He's American. Rafael Lovato Jr., that's going to be one to watch. Look out. Look out for Yuri Samoy's boy, because he is a mega talent. Dana Scrums, any insight? Are the rumors true that they're not filmed anymore or only for a select few members of the media? Uh, that's, I don't have, I mean, no one's not a memo, but that's my understanding, yeah. All right. New talent. This week on the MMA Hour, Ariel Hawani said that he felt like there was not a lot of up-and-coming talent coming out of Canada these days, as opposed to a couple of years ago, and now with Ireland, Sweden, Russia all putting out some very decent prospects. Luke, which country or region do you think will be the next hotbed for MMA talent? Even though they need a lot of time to grow, I think that within two to three years, Mexico will be putting out a lot of MMA prospects. Um, Mexico's certainly on the radar. I think there's that. I think a lot of people look to the caucus region, so you've seen a lot of these guys. Um, you saw a couple of Chechen guys this past weekend over at Team Tiger, Marbek Tysimov, um, and a few others. Um, there's that. I think, obviously, I think Russia has already, if not already established itself. I mean, it depends what you want to sort of define as huge boom, but yes, Russia seems to be certainly at the forefront of that. Um, I'm not convinced about China anytime soon, not to say that they won't, but not. Not within five years, I don't think. Uh, although, you know, a lot can happen in five. I think Latin America generally, you guys know I'm pretty high on. Um, I, I mean, listen, the key is this. Like, it's not about who has good athletes. Because there's lots of places that have really good athletes. Even small countries have good athletes. Um, or guys who are just sort of naturally suited to this kind of game. It's not that. You want to fight at a world-class level, you need world-class training. And so to me, that's kind of the issue. Um, and if you look at places that are starting to produce talent at a really high level, um, it's not coincidental these guys have world-class facilities and trainers. Now, there are some exceptions to that, obviously. But typically speaking, to have like a huge cadre, a class of prospects, as it were, you've got to have the best in the world training and developing them. 
And so the, the, the question is not who has great athletes. Like, like think of Iran. Like if you guys don't know this, and maybe you don't, maybe you do, Iran is full of sick athletes, okay? Like they win tons of weightlifting titles. Their wrestling is impeccable. Next time you think USA has good wrestlers, and we do, we have very good wrestlers, watch what happens when there's like a USA versus Iran duel. We get smoked, man. Jordan Burroughs beats those guys, and maybe we have a couple others who hang a little bit. But up and down the weight roster, sorry, y'all, Iran just runs it. And they run it pretty handily. Now, Russia obviously has a big rivalry with them because they're pretty good, too. But that's my point. Like, these guys are tailor-made, one of the best wrestling cultures ever in the world. Um, but And they have world-class facilities in terms of those kinds of things. But for mixed martial arts, that portion is missing for the full striking, for the full submissions. So it's not really a function of who has good athletes. Lots of places have good athletes. It's about who can get those good athletes early and consistently in world-class programs. Um, and that's a little bit harder to, to sort of figure out. Again, some obvious candidates in Mexico, caucus region, Russia, um, parts that you've mentioned, Sweden. Um, those things kind of already exist in the UK to some extent. Um, but that's the issue. You're not going to get a lot of world-class guys. You might get some. You get a handful. You'll get some beasts. But you really kind of need a development system. And that works for everything. If you look at soccer, I know everyone else calls it football, but go look at soccer. The best places are the ones that have long-standing early age recruitment and then training and development prospects. Guys aren't playing in a dirt field until they're 18 and then walk over to, you know, uh, Emirates Stadium and then just try out for Arsenal. It doesn't really work that way. You've got to get picked up early, developed early, and then turn into something pretty early. Um, so that's kind of the issue for me. So, you know, pick your spot, but I don't think there's any one place. Like, I'm not expecting people to all of a sudden start popping out of Trinidad and Tobago. I don't think that's going to help. Also, places that have sort of a much more wrestling-based culture. You know, Guam isn't necessarily the most um, economic powerhouse with a huge middle class, but they sort of always have a guy or two that's, that's making a little bit of noise from their country, and they always, I think, will. Um, I don't know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But you know, even places like Australia, you can get the people there have a lot of money, relatively speaking. But you know, look at guys, even in sport jiu-jitsu, guys like Kit Dale. Like, how good is Kit Dale going to be if he never leaves Australia? I don't know. I don't think I don't think he's going to be a black belt world champion at the Mundials without it. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I'm a big fan of Kit Dale, but speaking realistically, that's kind of what he's up against. So it turns out for that's for MMA as well. So um, you know, there's going to be guys out there with novel styles. There's going to be a couple of uh, uh, physical beasts from impoverished parts of the world who are able to do incredible things, but the buck eventually stops. You know, they really have to have proper nutrition, proper training, proper facilities, all these kinds of things, and especially in the modern game. Maybe you could have gotten away with it, you know, 10 years ago. I don't think you can get away with it now. I know everyone was like, oh, look at the Spartan training that Fedor did, you know, and he was one of the first to, like, use the sledgehammer to hit tires, which everyone kind of does now. In some ways, it was innovative. But in other ways, it was sort of bare bones. and I think you can get really far that way, but I still think there's a limit, man. I still think there's a limit. Plus, if you look at what those, the Russian guys are doing now, it's leagues advanced beyond that. All right. Did I skip one? No, sorry. Uh, DC Jones strategy talk. Ah, I've already kind of done this a little bit. Um... Optimal strategy for DC and Jones. Man. 
I would say for DC, it's either control with the wrestling, if you can't establish putting Jones on his back. And if you can get Jones on your back, then that's just the game plan. If it's not the game plan, you have to constantly mix it up. Because once Jones starts getting creative, and once Jones starts making you react to him, he's a nightmare. He's a nightmare for everybody. You don't want that. Jones needs to be reacting to you. And if you notice, like, the offensive output that Gustafson had in those first three rounds, I think Jones took one of them. Right? Yeah, I think, well, I can't remember anymore. But whatever the case, those first three rounds that Gustafson and Jones fought, man, Gustafson was constantly moving, constantly, and mixing up this game. Oh, here's a takedown. Pumping with a jab, circling out, like really kind of staying on and making Jones react. You have to really get in his face and push him back. And that's hard to do because he's going to push back too. He's a very credible talent. But to the extent you can get things mixed up and in his face, if you can't outright control with the wrestling, I think that's the key. For John Jones, I would say distance is key. Staying on his feet is key. Getting off the cage is key. Kicks is going to be an interesting strategy for him because the extent that he lifts his leg, Daniel Cormier is going to be all over it. So I really am going to be curious to see what kind of jab Jones has, uh, what kind of punching at range he has, what kind of footwork he uses. He's usually a little more flat-footed. Uh, this one, I think he's going to be, have to be on his toes a little bit more. It's going to be interesting, man. The key for me is if he can stuff the takedown without then giving up any more offensive territory afterwards. In other words, getting up, giving up the takedown, excuse me, getting the sprawl down, quickly popping back up, and then launching into offense rather than having Cormier do it. That, to me, is going to be key. Those little moments of takedown is, is, is prevented. Boom, they pop back up. Who hits first? That, to me, is kind of going to be that interesting moment. Because if you've ever seen someone train sprawling, I think a lot of times we see this guy sprawls and then gets back up and the fight resets. But when you actually train sprawling, again, I'm no world-class trainer, but I've done, or even wrestler, but I've done some of this a little bit, enough to have an idea. Um, the trick to it is you get your hips down, and then you immediately pop back to your feet. Like the drills they do, what we'll do is um, they'll put on three minutes on the clock, and it is three minutes of hell. Sounds like it's not that big a deal. You try it. Where you just keep your feet moving in a crouch position, and they go sprawl. And you sprawl, and then you immediately pop to your feet. Sprawl, sprawl. And they do this for three minutes straight, and the key is to keep your feet moving the whole time while you sprawl. But the, but the point being is, is sprawling is not necessarily just getting your legs back. It's just about flattening your hips to the mat and popping right back up. And for me... I want to see who, now in MMA, there has to be some kind of separation sometimes. We see a guy sprawl, put his hand or his elbow on the shoulder, and then the head, and he sort of steps away slowly and carefully, particularly against a guy like maybe like Hani Yaya, who can sort of pull guard inside and trap you a little bit. But typically speaking, those are going to be those moments that I'm watching. If the guy gets the sprawl or doesn't, but if he gets the sprawl, boom, pop backs up. But who hits first? Who gets the shot off? Who gets the uppercut off? Who gets, you know, who can keep it, who at range? That to me is really going to be kind of interesting. That's, that's sort of what I'm looking for. Those, those little moments are going to make all the difference, man. Because even if that takedown fails, if Cormier is the first to land an uppercut afterwards, goddamn, man, John Jones is going to be in some trouble. He's going to have, he's going to know he can maybe stuff the takedown, but he's going to be on his heels defensively, kind of always finding a pocket, a, 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 a moment, an opportunity to launch offense. I think that is going to be a real big key. Now, in terms of all the different sort of striking combinations, I don't have much of a good read on that. But that, to me, is sort of what I'm looking for. Gunnar Nelson. Should Gunnar Nelson drop to lightweight? He looks reasonably small for the division. Um, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I, he didn't look tremendously outsized by Rick Story. For me, it wasn't a size issue. It wasn't one of those things where, like, when you saw Dominic Cruz fight Demetrius Johnson, you could tell the guys were pretty equivalently skilled. That maybe, maybe Dominic Cruz was a little more skilled, at least at the time of which they fought in 2011. 
But there wasn't a major skill differential. There was a point there where the size disparity allowed Dominic Cruz, also with his skill, I'm not saying it was you know, strictly size, but if you get two people of relatively equal skill and one is demonstrably bigger than the other, the bigger dude's going to win. It's just kind of how it goes. You know? Look at who uh, look at the absolute finals this past weekend. Mackenzie Dern versus Gabby Garcia, like a hundred pound difference. Mackenzie Dern is technically as talented as Gabby Garcia, if not more. But it doesn't matter because the weight was so huge. It just there's nothing you can do. And she tried tried a bunch of like triangle armbar options right when they first opened up. And it didn't work. She got smushed. You know, this is my point. It wasn't that Gunnar Nelson was like so dramatically outsized, which isn't to say that a drop wouldn't help him. But to me, there was something about his offense that was missing. He was a little bit cold and off at times. You know, was Rick Story like this tremendously better striker? In some respects, I suppose it was a really clean, efficient performance from Rick Story, which is something you don't always get from him. And I applaud him for that. I thought it was a really good, good, um, disciplined performance from him. But Gunnar Nelson just sort of seemed to wait and wait and wait. And he'd pop a shot and wait. And wait, and wait. That was not what Rick Story was doing. Rick Story was really pumping the jab and working the body constantly and finding opportunities with those leg kicks. And it wasn't like he, I mean, he did drop him that one time, but it was once in four rounds he dropped him. Gunner seemed to be okay when he got back up. In fact, whose face looked worse after the fact? Now, Rick Story's been in a few more wars, so maybe his face doesn't quite respond to punishment as well anymore. But you get the idea of what was happening here. Rick Story just had a much more consistent level of proactive offense. And it was, and honestly, his offense is really good. I, I respect Rick Story in the sense that I think he goes to the body, both sides of the body and with his, his hands and his feet, much more than even some guys who claim to be body uh, tacticians. But he didn't do any Anthony Pettis crazy things. It was clean, but, but well-executed. Basic but well-executed offense. Get in his face, push him back, mix it up, uh, and don't get too crazy one way or the other. It was a, it was a it was a pretty pretty great performance from him. But it wasn't like Gunnar Nelson was firing back all the time and really getting in his face and pushing him back. It wasn't how it was, and it wasn't like Rick Story was going crazy and trying to mix and take down. So he stayed away from it, which I thought was really smart. It was a good performance from Rick Story. I was glad to see that John Crouch was reining in some of the more brawling impulses that sometimes plague Rick Story's ability to really manage um, fights better. And he didn't have that problem here. But the, the issue for Gunnar Nelson, like, again, it's not a, maybe the lightweight wouldn't be beneficial. But why did he lose this fight? Was it a size issue? Not really. Gunnar Nelson seemed to take most of those punches pretty well. He seemed to be able to hurt, at least back up Rick Story on occasion with his own shots. But it was that his striking style was really uh, patient to a fault. His offensive output was patient to a fault. He's got to get out there and got to be more active. There's a buddy of mine who is uh, trying to, you know, uh, an amateur MMA fighter. And, you know, again, I'm not going to be in anyone's corner anytime soon. But just from watching all the MMA I've watched from the amateur level to seeing some of my friends go from the amateur levels and reach pretty high levels in, in, pro, in, in the pros and I remember when Mike Easton was an amateur. You know, he washed out of the UFC recently, but he made it there and he won some fights there. You know, it's a very difficult thing to do. Most fighters will never get as far as Mike Easton got. And I've seen their progress. And just one thing that always sticks out to me is the guys who get after it first, by and large, are the ones who win. MMA is so heavily predicated on just being first and being often. 
And defense matters, of course. You know, you don't want to go too crazy. There's ways to sort of issue caveats with that argument. But but if you want to just know the most important rule in MMA, be offensive, be first. It's so critical. It's so absolutely critical. If you take time off and around, you will pay. So if not this fight, then the next one. Hendricks versus McDonald. How do you see this fight going if it happens? Oof. That's a tough one to say. Um, I can see McDonald beating him, to be honest. I can see McDonald being really, really efficient with range. Hendricks trying to explode into things. Um, almost like a Yoel Romero type against McDonald, anyway. I don't know. I haven't thought much about that one. That's an interesting question, though. Battleground MMA. Luke, what are your thoughts on the um, Oklahoma State Athletic Commission's fine on Juan Carnero? Juan Carnero. What would you think of the commentators of Chael Sonnen and Jim Ross? Didn't watch the show, so I have no uh, opinion on that. Um, in terms of the fine, the commission seems fairly adamant from what I understand and what I've been told. The commission seems very adamant that Carnero was very, very late. Um, I hope there's an appeals process where this issue can be meted out. I think you should have, he claims he was never even told that this was going to be an issue. I think they should have told him up front. Um, I'm not saying that the Oklahoma Athletic Commission is in all ways incompetent, but a guy should know before his purse is coming if he's being fined. Especially if the issue was the medicals, which has to take place before the fight takes place. There should, it should be known at that time, that, or at least you know, in a, in a very narrow window after that that he is going to be on the receiving end of the fine. Shouldn't it be the case that when the, the check is ready to come, that there's some big missing piece of it? I think that's sort of a really poor way of handling things. All right. Victor Conti recently came out in support of Kung Lee, Kung Lee is spelled wrong, and believes that he never popped hot for HGH and criticized the UFC's testing policies. What are your thoughts on some of his comments, and do you think there's any truth to the rumor that Lee was indeed clean and that the UFC dropped the ball? Here's what I would say. Uh, and I wrote about this, and everyone was kind of like, well, I don't get it, Luke. They're never going to do this. What, who cares if, it, if, if you want to write about it? About what would happen if the UFC became a water code signatory? Now, they won't do that, I suspect. But there are really key portions of what it means to be a water code signatory that would really help them. And this is one of them. Everyone thinks that drug testing is about taking both blood and urine. Everyone thinks of that drug testing is catching guys out of competition. Everyone thinks that... Drug testing is doing multiple tests over long periods of time. And they're right. It is those things. It is using blood and urine. It is going out of competition. And it is staying on top of these guys throughout long periods of time. But it is also the chain of custody once the samples are collected. Is the person collecting the samples an experienced collector in that way? An, an officiator? Is the person who is collecting those samples, is he using the proper containing devices? Is the person who has the contained devices and is overseeing these testing, is he delivering it to a lab in the proper way? There's a certain time, there has to be certain kind of conditions for these materials to be stored. Is the lab testing them with clean and other non-obstructed ways? And are they saving things, which are supposed to do with their water code signatory, so that there can be retests? in the event that there wants to be an appeals process. There's all kinds of things that have to happen. So the point being is, 
everyone thinks that testing is the guy sticking the needle in the arm and drawing the blood. And that testing is the athlete urinating in the cup. And they're right, it is those things. But that is strictly one small part of it. There is much more to drug testing than simply the act of testing. And they used a facility, the UFC did, in Hong Kong that claims to do quote-unquote autism medical testing. If that is not a red flag, I do not know what is. Apparently there's a lab in Hong Kong that is not accredited by WADA that seems to have, they think, the cutting edge on medical testing for autism when the rest of the medical world can't seem to figure out exactly what's causing all this. Okay, so that's a huge red flag. That said, for me, um, you know, and to the extent that this is a scientific answer that I'm giving you, you are welcome to reject it. I, this lab is flawed. Here's the, here's the basic argument. This lab is clearly flawed. The chain of custody that they had is clearly flawed. And so on those grounds, you can say it could be the case. Both things could be true. That Kung Lee was on HGH. It could be true that he did all those things. It's not going to be the case that this Hong Kong facility is in all circumstances going to have false positives. They're going to be right more often than they're wrong. In fact, substantially more than they're wrong. But that's not the point. The point is for Kung Lee, for Joe Schmo, for anybody else who gets tested, they have a right to a certain amount of procedures to protect themselves. Because Kung Lee looked like he was, I mean, out of a comic book at age 42, 43 in that fight. When they announced he had popped for AGH, was anybody surprised? That's not a scientific answer I'm giving you, but it's the one that comes to mind. It's the one as naturally suspicious, skeptical human beings you're allowed to make. But it's also true that even, even if Kung Lee is guilty, they're still, no matter what, guilty, not guilty, everyone is entitled to a level of testing that guarantees certain protections. Everyone is allowed and guaranteed a kind of testing that is legitimate. Everyone. That's how the system is supposed to work. That if you're guilty, you get caught, but there is no shadow of a doubt about the collection process, the storing process, all those things. The chain of custody has to be done correctly. So I can both believe that Kung Lee actually is kind of guilty and also kind of has a point. Or maybe he's not, but the point being is you can still be like, I'm skeptical of Kung Lee and also still say, what happened here that they went to that lab? Was it because the costs of going to, as the MMA Junkie article pointed out, to the real WADA-accredited lab in Beijing was a four-hour flight versus a one-hour ferry ride to the one in Hong Kong? I don't know the answer to that. But because they didn't store a second sample, there's no appeals process for Kung Lee. That's, that's unfair. I don't know how else you want to say it. That's, that's tremendously unfair. Is this thing on? I'm talking this whole time. This thing's even on. It's tremendously unfair. So there's not too much to be done about it as far as I can tell. There's no appeals process in place. There's no sample. Even if they wanted to go back, I don't really know what they do. And that's sort of the other big question here is, listen, I'm not going to beat up on the UFC too much about this because the truth is, could they have done better? Of course. Of course. That's not the issue of whether they could have done better. The question is, what do they do going forward from here? They need to have certain protections for these athletes in place that they can appeal. Even if it's a waste of time and money, it's their right. It's their right as a clean athlete. It's not a right 
you know, and some sort of inalienable sense guaranteed by the creator. But it's, it's the kind that would be afforded to them under the strictest level of testing. If you're going to have the strictest level of testing, then you also have to have certain mechanisms in place for these guys to guarantee their innocence. You have to have it. It's just part of the process. So I applaud the UFC for doing extra testing. I applaud them for trying to take the steps to do both blood and urine and catch these guys. But that is not that is a necessary condition of testing. It's not a sufficient one. There is a much larger body of things that have to happen all collectively for true, you know, uh, meaningful anti-doping procedures to be in place. And they missed that. And so, so the UFC wants to do self-regulation out of in places where there is no other option, then that's how it has to be. But this is sort of one of the situations that highlights maybe what they're doing is not enough, at least in that part of the world. Maybe if they go to the UK or Australia, maybe it's easier to get an accredited laboratory by WADA. Okay, but in this particular case, if they want to go back to China or any other area where this might be a concern, they ever go to the Philippines. Or I'm just making up something. I don't know. You get the idea. In any place where it's not so easy... Um, they need to review their policies. Get, clean athletes have to be protected. Now, I don't know if Kung Lee was or he wasn't. I have suspicions that he wasn't. That's not scientific. That's nothing I can go to court with. It's just a personal opinion. But either way, clean athletes have a right to be protected. And they should be. And if they don't have the mechanisms in place to protect themselves, that's a problem. As for Victor Conti, I don't care what he says. Um, thoughts on Dan Hardy making a comeback in 2015 at 155? As long as he's medically healthy and cleared to do it, uh, I don't. It'd be great. Yeah, come on back. I think he's a great commentator. I'm, I'm glad to see he's got a gig doing that. If he'd like to compete, great. I mean, you know, all this sort of assumes he can medically protect himself. That um, this condition that he had has been resolved in some capacity or another. But uh, we'll see. Rafael Sunsau, am I justified in feeling underwhelmed by Rafael Sunsau's performance on Saturday? Um, I guess it depends, doesn't it? I would submit to you a couple of things. I would submit to you that I think Brian Caraway is underrated. It's hard to beat Brian Caraway. It's hard to look good against him. Sorry. Maybe you don't like him as a person. That's your prerogative, but you really can't take away the talent that he has and the particular ways in which he matches up with Rafael Sunsau. So it's not so easy to beat him. There's lots of guys in the UFC that are not going to be the best or champions that are hard to look good against. I think Mike Pierce is one of those guys. Hard to look good against that guy. You know, I guess Husamar Pajaras uh, had a different response to that. But some of the guys who fought Mike Pierce, he, he takes the best guys the distance routinely, and they don't always come out looking like roses against him, but he just can't beat them. There's, there's guys who are like that, and I think to some extent – kind of have to accept Brian Caraway might be that guy. He's tough. He's tough to beat. Um, on the other hand, if you're Rafael Sunsau, you are, you are trying to maintain position. You're not trying to go out there and wow. I mean, you could go out there and wow, and that would be great, but what's the, if, you're, if you're him, what's the most important thing? I cannot give up the position to which I have found myself in through all these wins. I cannot jeopardize that. I cannot risk that. It's a natural human response. You guys can all criticize it. Oh, he should get out there and go and blah, 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 blah. That's just a bunch of nonsense. That has nothing to do with actually how humans psychologically work through challenges like this. 
99% of even fighters in those circumstances are going to do just enough, just enough to maintain position. So between people actually kind of underrating Brian Caraway a little bit, which I think they do, and then Rafael Sunsell not wanting to give up this sort of quasi number one contender status, so to speak, he's going to fight in a way that isn't necessarily going to blow the doors off of you, but will be just enough to make sure he gets a title shot, or at least keeps his name in the running for one, based on the back of a resume. Not so much going out there and, oh, he knocked out this guy, knocked out that guy. How can you deny him? He's not on that Conor McGregor train. He can't do what Conor McGregor does in some respects. Um, but he can go out there and beat really good fighters. That's what he can do. So that's what he's going to do. And he's not going to really risk it in any kind of way to jeopardize that. And you may not like that, but that is humanity. That is what people do. Some people will go and above and beyond the call of duty, and you should always praise them when they do. But you shouldn't really be in any way surprised or annoyed when people uh, don't compete up to the best of their ability because they're risking that and risking all that they've gained in doing something else could have uh, huge negative consequences for their career. What do you expect in these upcoming fights? Paul Juarez and Fitch? I expect Fitch to not get submitted and then Paul Harris to get stopped within a round. Berkman and Lombard. I expect Lombard to uh, thrash him. Although, you know, Berkman can surprise you. Uh, let's see. People only gave us two wrecks, but I'll give it a third. Luke, after Gil Gilbert Melendez and Pettis, who do you think should face the winner at 155? Well, it will depend on who wins and how. Um, if Pettis wins, I'd like to see him fight Nurmagomedov. If Gilbert wins, gosh, I guess I'd also like to see him fight Nurmagomedov. I think Nurmagomedov is the guy. Sorry, guys. I don't know how you feel. Maybe you agree. Maybe you don't. I don't know. I just think he's that guy. A little bit of an issue finishing people, but just between what he can do striking, his output, and the kind of wrestling and grappling that he has, and the way that he marries all of his offense together, I think he's that guy. You know, again, can he beat Pettis? Can he beat Melendez? I don't know. But to me, that's a much better question to, to sort of consider and ponder than what's going to happen if Cowboy fights Pettis. We've already seen what happens with Cowboy fights Pettis. They're not in the same league. It doesn't work that way. Let's see. Dana's absence. Dana wasn't at either fight card this weekend. Thoughts? I thought he was at the Halifax card. I guess not. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's what, how it should be. He doesn't need to beat all of them. I don't know how it's physically possible to beat all of them. And as the company grows and these guys get managers in these different regions, so, you know, um, Middle East, North Africa, parts of Europe, Southeast Asia, South America, North America, and then it works out that way. Um, the people who are in charge of these regions should be taking on a more substantive role. It's not so great for you or I because those guys, when they're asked at press conferences for opinions about things, I can't really say a whole lot, but nevertheless, um, yeah, I mean, listen, look, can the guy stay home for a couple of weekends? Is that the worst thing in the world? You know, I don't think it is, so I don't know what the big deal about that is, really, to be, to be, fair, to be fair to him. Oh, I'm just going to answer this one. Um, Google me, bitch. Have these words ever left Luke Thomas's mouth, and how did you score the fight between Cody Gibson and some drunk guy? Uh, I don't care. I mean, I know it's 
hilarious thing and it went viral in a way and so you have to pay attention to it but like personally speaking hard, hard for me to care Lawler versus Hendricks 2 do you think this fight will be as competitive as the first I think it'll be just as competitive unless someone gets drilled early who's better for the division as champion and why I think they're just about equal I don't think any one guy stands out for the division as some sort of real superhero type thing where he can take on this transcendent role and, and bring in media and bring in fans and, and really sort of energize people in a way. I think Robbie Lawler has a strong cadre of fans who support him, are love his his new role as the uh, you know, the prodigal son who has returned. I think and I think that's a real thing and it's a cool thing. But it doesn't really sort of matter for the vast majority of mainstream uh, casual fans who, you know, the UFC wants to reach into for both live shows and pay-per-view. And the same thing probably goes for Johnny Hendricks. Maybe Hendricks a little bit more, but not much, you know. Sure, he's got a great wrestling past, and, you know, he's got a real blue-collar kind of ethos and appeal, but how big that can actually get, I don't know. Um, you know, he's in his 30s already. So, you know, listen... Uh, I think both would be good for the division. I don't think anyone would be negative, but I don't know that one really is like got a clear head. You know, uh, there's there's not one of the two that you look at and you say, "Wow, this guy can bring this to the table that this other guy can't to a quantifiable degree." You can say that between, for example, GSP and Hendricks or GSP and Lawler, but you can't really say that between Lawler and Hendricks. It's not a significant difference. Both are American as well. It's not like one is Brazilian or Canadian where you could re-energize um, those, those nationalistic impulses. Both guys are American. So, so they're both great, but it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. Someone says, IV uh, rehydration. Use of IV is banned, quote, as a method under water code. Do you know if it's legal and commonly used in MMA? I don't know if it's legal, but I certainly know it's common. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I know tons of people who do this. I know people who set it up so they have nurses waiting for them. Once it's over, it, pop it in, rehydrate. I have no idea if it's safe. I have no idea if it's legal. Um, obviously, it'll probably vary state to state. But I have seen it used, boy. Let's see. Um, your thoughts on Anthony Burchak? Should the UFC push him in the MMA market of Mexico? Has he done? He has done some seminars. Yeah, listen. Lots of guys should get pushed there. It'd be fine. Um, anybody who can speak Spanish fluently, at least to a you know recognizable degree. Um, who's, got, who's got some kind of Latino roots, Mexican preferred? Yeah, of course. I mean, asking if someone should be pushed in that market is not a particularly important question. The question is, you know, um, what's the best way or who are we leaving out? But I don't think, how do I say this exactly? Um, lots of guys are going to get pushed. You know, for example, uh, Ricardo Lamas is in Mexican, but he speaks really good Spanish and, um, you know, has the name, Ricardo Lamas. They're going to push him in Mexico a little bit and throughout Latin America as well. He'll do media tours for them and they'll probably do some seminars as well. But it's not about pushing just him. It's about a whole class 
of guys and different weight classes that can get that fan base moving, you know. Someone says, how big of an advantage of use of IVs um, could give fighters who cut a ton of weight compared to the likes of Gunny Nelson? I'll tell you a story because Mike Easton did it once. This was years ago. And when he was fighting in the UWC, that's before he ever went to the UFC. And I remember uh, he had to make 125, and he made it on the nugget. I can't remember if this was the Chase BB fight or not. I think it was. And um, the weigh-ins were at the hotel. And we had a media, he and I had a media appearance together maybe two hours later. But we were way, way, way out in Fairfax County, which is like an hour. I live in D.C., but the weigh-ins were out there. And we had to drive back to D.C. to go make a media appearance. And I picked him up an hour later, one hour after the weigh-in, and he was 139 pounds. Okay, so he weighed in at 120, or no, sorry, what am I saying? He had weighed in at 135 and was 149 pounds when I picked him up. It was like a lot. Uh, okay, true or false, will Rory get the next title shot or will Rory and Lombard fight? Depends how Lombard looks against Berkman. TJ Grant fights in 2015, true. If you had five days in L.A., where would you train BJJ? I haven't even looked at the gym in L.A. I don't know, where's Bouchesha, wherever he's at. Um... Why does Bellator continue to lack heavy promotion and investment in Eduardo Dantas' reign as champion? He's top 10. He might be. He was out for a long time. He doesn't have a lot of rivals, although they're trying their best to do that with Joe Ward. God bless him. He's trying his best to do that this upcoming week. By the way, have you looked at this Bellator card on Friday? It's not too bad, man. It's not too bad. Last couple of Bellator cards, I can't even tell you hardly anything about them. But this one this weekend, check this out. Eduardo Dantas returns to face Joe Warren, and I think he's going to steamroll Joe Warren. Michael Venom Page is going to fight Nishan Burrell. Nishan Burrell, you might mention, recall from a couple of fights in the UFC, Venom Page was the guy who had the incredible performance at Bellator 120. Bubba McDaniel, okay, versus Emiliano uh, Sordi. It's not that great, but whatever. It's a recognizable name. And then Alexander Sarnovsky versus Dakota Cochran. That's at least fun, right? We can at least agree that a Russian... Striker, who's pretty capable, like Sarnowski, versus a wrestle boxer like Dakota Cochran. There's some value there, um, at least for entertainment purposes. But I'm only, I only care about the main event and co-main event. That main event and co-main event is sick, man. It was really, really good. I want to see how good Venom Page is against Sean Burrell. When I interviewed Venom Page at um, Bellator 120, he was like, I worked on my ground game for nothing but this entire camp. That I haven't shown it is irrelevant. We're going to see if that's true. We're going to see because I think Burrell can test him there. But I also think that Burrell is sort of a little bit languid in his offense, and I think that Page is not. I think Page, he does all the showboating and stuff, but do he kind of, you watch how often is he attacking, he's attacking a lot, he moves a lot. Uh, I'm really curious to see how he does. And Dantas, you know, they haven't put a ton into him, but, you know, he just doesn't speak English, he's not one of these guys who really registers. He's a really, really, really high-level fighter, but not everyone's a star attraction, you know. I don't think Dantas is a star attraction. I don't know that he can be either. I just... Do people really feel it for him? That's really what you're looking at. People kind of have to get a certain sympathy about you. And he's amazingly talented. Amazingly talented. But not everyone has that it. You know? I don't know. With Overeem and uh, Giordano Santos fighting on the same card in December, do you foresee them fighting after? Overeem's got to win. 
Man, if Overeem doesn't win, do you think the UFC cuts him? I've been pondering that question a lot. If he can't beat Stefan Struve, what's the UFC doing? I don't know the answer to that. Oh, so, so someone says, LA area has Art of Jiu-Jitsu, Crone, Gracie Academy, and 10th Planet. Personally speaking, I go to Crone's Academy. I've heard really good things. And uh, you have to go to Art of Jiu-Jitsu because it looks like Jiu-Jitsu heaven because it's all white. Uh, thoughts on the Sun South sitting, waiting for the title shot. It's like everyone else asks, what about this guy sitting? What about that guy sitting? What does it matter? If a guy wants to do it, he should do it. And if he has to eat the consequences, and so be it. But it really kind of looks like he beat Brian Caraway. There's not a lot of other guys for him to beat. Dominic Cruz is going to fight TJ Dillashaw. If there's a pretty clear winner for that, Cruz might be right up in line. Actually, I'm sorry, Cruz. A Sun's out. Now, it may also be the case that if Cruz wins a tight contest, that, you know, they'll want to do a rematch. And that's the risk he runs. But I never, I never really worry about guys sitting. I don't think it's this huge problem. It definitely backfires sometimes. So those fighting guys where you're not supposed to be. I don't think there's this huge body of evidence to suggest that constantly competing is better than sitting and waiting. We're told that from a talking point perspective. I don't know that that's actually true. Uh, I would like to see some data. Without the data, there's this, this sort of conventional wisdom. Oh, well, you should compete because it's better for you. It can be. It could also be really bad. Luke, why is there no one following uh, JMMA anymore, Japanese MMA? There's entertaining fighters and promising prospects. Um, there seem to be a couple of interesting guys coming out of there, but um, there's no big shows. The big shows are all but gone. The fan base has dwindled rapidly. Uh, media has dwindled significantly. So this, the, when the scene goes from this to this, it's just harder to pay attention. There's less interesting things going on. It's harder to get access to them. Um, you know, a lot of the reasons why, for example, Sherdog was able to cover things in Japan and even MMA fight to an extent is because guys were there. Tony Lawsler, Daniel Herbertson. I think Daniel has moved to Australia. I don't know what Tony's up to. Um, harder to get news. Part of news is like we can't afford, you know, to pay somebody to go to Japan and do all these things. Moreover, you know, who's doing the most interesting things in Asia right now? As I speak to you right this moment, who's doing the most interesting things in Asia? I would submit to you it's 1FC. Not to say that all 1FC fights are great or all the shows are the most important things in the world, but from an aggregate perspective, them going to Kuala Lumpur and them trying to enter now mainland China and going to the Philippines and trying to raise these other teams, teams like Team Lakai and Evolve and, and so forth, and some of these Korean teams are trying to get a hold of now. That, to me, is much more interesting. It's regionally dynamic. It's guys where the scene is on the come-up versus sort of surviving after contracting. That That is more interesting to me. Even some of the better Japanese guys, I mean, some still are there, but, you know, even Shinya Aoki is over at Evolve Academy, so, okay, Academy, but Evolve MMA, Evolve Academy is here in the D.C. area. Which title fights do you find the most appealing? Title fights have been basically announced for virtually every division. Rank them in the order that you are most interested in. All right. Jones DC would be number one. Wyman Belfour would be two. Pettis Melendez would be three. Uh, TJ Cruz, four. Um, 
um, Rossi Zingano, five. Hendricks Lawler, six. Um, Kane Verdun, seven. Aldo Mendez, eight. Could you also pick the most competitive fights? Uh, Aldo Mendez, for sure. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, Pettis Melendez, for sure. Hendricks Lawler. And then Jones DC is probably going to be crazy. And TJ and Cruz, I don't know. They're all pretty competitive for the most part. Kane Verdun, not so much. Um, we'll see what happens with Aldo Mendez. But the rest are all pretty competitive, you know. Whose legacy has been hurt the most out of the recent PED users that got caught and why? It has to be Vanderlei Silva, man. He went from hero to zero. And that's a stupid thing to say. It's what you find on a t-shirt at Hot Topic, but Jesus, it is true. Kung Lee didn't look good, but he's got an important case. Belfort's fighting for a title shot. Sonnen's pretty bad, but he, his part of his appeal has nothing to do with how he competes. And he's out there doing, you know, Metamorist, and he's out there doing 1FC stuff. So people, or not 1FC, I'm sorry, 1 um, Battlegrounds MMA stuff. And so people are always interested in hearing from him in that kind of perspective. So I think he's starting a podcast, if I haven't, if I heard that correctly. So, uh, yeah, so it has to be Vanderlei. Because Vanderlei is just sort of issuing these weird videos from Brazil that partly have some truth to them, and partly it's just him covering for what is a totally ignoble ending to his career. Someone says Barcelona expelling La Liga, uh, getting expelled from La Liga. Yeah, right. Bellator fighter pay. Luke, the salaries for Bellator 125 were recently released, and I was quite surprised at how little some of the fighters make. Even well-known fighters like Rhino Marshall and Manhoof only make 20K and 10K, respectively. How can Bellator compete with the UFC for talent when they pay their own fighters so little? I included a link to those salaries below. A couple of things. Number one, they aren't competitors to the UFC. Not now. I don't know how many times I can say this. Bellator is a number two. That doesn't mean number two is close to number one. So they'll compete for some guys for the UFC's, you know, roster, but at very little capacity, um, which is fine, but let's just sort of be real about what's happening here. That's the first. Second, uh, I'll mention it again. Sam Kaplan was on his new podcast he does with Jason Floyd. Very good listen. I recommend it highly. I'm glad to see that Sam is out there and divulging as many things as he can. And he was making a point that these numbers, particularly about Bellator, were worthless, that there were lots of ways they would disguise pay. So, for example... Um, they would give you a bonus, quote-unquote, for showing up to the weigh-ins. they give you a bonus for showing up on fight night. And that would be, a, you know, among other things, so that when you actually get your full paycheck, the disclosed amount on the bout agreement to the commission could have been a small fraction of what you actually made. This was also true for European fighters, which I mentioned before. Um, now, what I disagree with Sam, respectfully, what I disagree with Sam on is he was saying, you know, um... He actually was in favor of having it this way. That, you know, that because he said, well, what happened is well, managers would read these disclosed payouts on MMA Fighting or MMA Junkie, and they would say, hey, look at this. This guy's making X amount. My guy is not, but my guy beat this guy or is better than this guy, or whatever the axe to grind may be. And they would sort of cause a lot of headaches for management. My response to that, to that would be that's sort of how this should work. We are in a sport where the fighters are independent contractors and basically have. Um, no rights and no leveraging power because they, either by their own fault or someone else's, don't act collectively. They do not have maximum earning potential. And to me, that management and ownership would be encumbered in a circumstance where there was transparency is of, I have no sympathy for them. 
I mean, not individually for Sam in that way. I don't mean it to sound so harsh. I just mean in an abstract way, it does not bother me if UFC management or Bellator management or World Series of Fighting management uh, or ownership is somehow encumbered by the fact that there's transparency about what their fighters make. To me, those fighters need that. They don't have any union and they don't have any rights and they don't have any guarantees. Transparency would be a great way for them to, to even the playing field. And, everyone, and I'd be the first to acknowledge what would happen if there was a circumstance where there was complete transparency about what everybody knew. And Sam, so if Sam argued, listen, do you want to work in a place where everyone knows what everyone else is making? Yes, I would adore the option to do that. I would love it. I, I would love to see what I'm making relative to my coworkers. I got my own reasons for that, but I would love it. I would absolutely love it. And maybe some wouldn't. But in other sports... There is transparency about this, and that's so that management and ownership does not always have the upper hand. There has to be a leveling of the playing field to me. And to me, right now, the playing field in terms of power and and uh, control over the sport is so tipped in the balance of ownership. It's 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 grossly unfair. Maybe not so much at Bellator um, or any one organization really, but collectively speaking. It's a, it's a big problem to me. It's a huge problem. And I would be the first to tell you that if they leveled the playing field, if everyone knew what everyone else was making and the fighters had much more leverage to negotiate, would it slow down operations? Yes, it would. Would it limit what the UFC could do in terms of their nimbleness? Yes, it would. That is a cost. Maybe you're not, but to me, that is a cost I am willing to pay. I am willing to have a slower-moving sport where I can at least know the athletes are making what they are able to make um, in a full, collectively bargained kind of way. Again, everyone's opinion is going to differ on that, but that's where I stand. And I, I just think that the, the, the balance is so out of whack that we need that to write what's, what's happening now. And I can understand Sam's perspective, and I respect him tremendously. You should go listen to his podcast. Him and Jason Floyd do a fantastic job. Sam's been really cool to me in my whole career. I love Sam. I respectfully disagree with him on that capacity, though. Uh, McGregor for the title. What do you think is the toughest fight for McConnor for the... Excuse me. Who do you think is the toughest fight for Conor for the title? Aldo or Mendez? Um, that's why I want to see him fight a wrestler before that fight, because I'd have a better answer for you. My inclination is to say Aldo... But maybe Connor really is terrible against wrestlers, or maybe he's not. You know, I, it's really hard to say. Do you think Connor will ever be able to get a title shot again, considering all the wrestlers that rule the division in the top fifteen right now? Let's see something real quick before I answer that question. Carlo Condit. Uh, hmm. Who would you match up against upon his return? All right, first of all, Condit is 30, which is not the end of his career by any stretch, but certainly not the beginning. So, as I pull up the rankings here, this is going to matter. You could give him Gunnar Nelson. You could give him Jordan Meehan. You could give him Rick Story. You could give him Kelvin Gastelum. You could, you've already beaten Donkey Kim. You could give him Safadine. You could give him Matt Brown. You could give him Lombard. You could give him, uh, I don't know if you give him Maya right away. You lots of guys you could give him. I wouldn't give him LaFleur. Um, you know, Condon's still ranked four. Um, but you can't give him Woodley. He's come up with a loss, so you can't give him McDonald. So maybe Matt Brown? 
Uh, Aldo versus Mendez for 179. Luke, they say if Aldo wins, he'll face McGregor next, but if Mendez wins, they'll do Aldo rematch immediately, since he already beat Mendez once before, has never lost in UFC or WEC, and hasn't lost since November of 2005. If Aldo gets the immediate title shot, then who do you think McGregor should face in the meantime? I, I like the winner of Lamas and, and Bermudez, personally. You could also give him the winner of Swanson and Edgar. I'd be fine with either of those. Because, in, I, frankly, I think Edgar's going to beat Swanson. I could be wrong. So, to me, it looks like in three of those four cases, Edgar, Lamas, and Bermudez, you have guys who can wrestle him to death. Now, I don't know what Bermudez might do. Bermudez might be a little bit crazy about it. But I know in the case of Edgar, he'd mix it up. And I know in the case of Lamas, he'd be all over him. So my preferred outcome would be either Edgar or Lamas. I, I don't want those guys to, like, ruin this prospect, but there's such a question mark about it. He could go in there and blow the doors off both those guys, and that would be tremendous. That would be awesome. How great would that be? Again, the most exciting time in a fighter's career is when they're on the come-up that first time, man. That first time they ride. There's only one time they do that. That one, I don't mean they earn their way to a title shot exactly. I mean make themselves known as a force to be reckoned with when they rise to the ranks. Nurmagomedov is still doing it even despite his injury. John Jones has one of the most important rises that way. And Conor McGregor's doing it now. This is the most exciting time in his career, man. It may not always be this exciting if he doesn't have rivals. We'll see. But there's such a question mark about it. Question mark not to say that he can't do it. Question mark to say is we just don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. We have no clue about how this is going to go. We need to figure that out. So for me, that's that would be preferred. <clears throat> Look, do you know if bars that play UFC pay-per-view like Buffalo Wild Wings are countered in the buy rate? Yes, but they don't count them as I don't think they count them anymore as any more than one. But that's always the case. So if it sells two hundred thousand or a million, we get the idea. I think they might they might count more for like because you have to purchase a business uh, a business. You have to get a certain license. If you're a business in a bar and you want to buy a pay-per-view, you can't pay like the, the, the 55 bucks. You have to pay a, a ton of money for the sort of business license to do it. And um, perhaps they count those as more, but it can be significant. I already kind of uh, answered this one. Luke, for years, literally every journalist I know has written article after article about how the UFC should step up and provide random out-of-competition testing, how the UFC has a huge drug problem due to cycling, we are not making one dent in the problem, blah, blah, blah. Uniform random testing is finally announced, and a grand total of one article is uploaded to the premier website, MMA Fighting. It is discussed for two minutes on the MMA beat as an aside, not its own topic, not even a freaking Chuck Mendenhall rehash article was posted. To me, this suggests you guys are not really interested in solutions. You view this as a moral crusade, which bolsters your sense of identity as journalists, but when a real-world solution is produced, it's not really worth your time. Having said all this, I appreciate your work, and if I'm wrong, I'd love to hear why. A couple of things I responded with. One, I wrote that WADA article because I, uh, well, I wrote the article because I wanted to. I'll put it that way. Um, but more importantly, I mean, you could make our case that maybe a couple more articles should have been written. But it's not like it was going to do tremendous traffic. Y'all just need to accept that we, we will write things that uh, will not get traffic because it's the important thing to do. We will also not cover things that get huge traffic because it doesn't fit our editorial vision. But any good site anywhere will tell you they take a lot of direction from their readers. 
They take a lot of direction from what fans and readers want to hear about. Now, you have to cover things even if they don't, but there's a lot of direction paid towards it. And if you think that there are a lot of fans clamoring for analysis of this, you are sadly mistaken. We are not letting, maybe, maybe you personally, and, and certainly you seem to have an issue, and that's fine, but really there's not a lot of interest around it. There, I firmly believe that a huge portion of the fan base simply does not care. They like the sort of salaciousness of it when a fighter like Kung Lee gets popped for HGH or, you know, Chael Sonnen's career goes into tatters. And, and they like that in a sort of a gossipy kind of way. But in terms of the procedures of fixing the problem, um, I'm not convinced that there's a lot of fan interest in that. I, I'm frankly also not convinced that there's a lot of fan sentiment around fixing the problem at all. I think some fans are quite happy to just let the commissions do what they do. If they catch a bunch of idiots in the process or, you know, just a handful of them with meager and minimal testing, that's fine as long as they get to see the fights that they want to see. And in fact, if this procedure comes into play and it has the effect that it's intended and it cancels out a bunch of fights, I suspect there will be some measure of fan backlash as well. Diaz tweeting about Michael Phelps. Yeah, that wasn't that funny. Luke, if you're charged with two DWIs like Diaz is, do you make jokes about it? Diaz tweets that he's so disappointed in Michael Phelps. Both of them should be in AA and do some reflecting. Well, I don't know if both of them need to be in AA. That's a little much. But uh, I don't know ever what to make of what he's thinking, but I would love to know what it is that compelled him to do that. Because if you have a point, like here's a guy charged with two of his own DWIs or DUIs, whatever the case may be, and he's sort of tweeting. <laughs> it's, almost like a, it's almost like a portion of him, like his inner conscience, is tweeting about Michael Phelps almost self-referentially. Uh, it's weird, but that's Diaz. Technique talk. Luke, would you ever do a technique talk with Habib on Sambo? I would, but it's not that's not how technique talks work. I don't just like pick a grand topic. I pick a question. There's a question. You know, why does MMA wrestling work a certain way? Uh, what is the blueprint to beat Ronda Rousey? Um, you know, why does Dominic Cruz have such a unique style of footwork? So I'd have to pick. Habib talking about Sambo because I want to answer a question about Sambo. I usually go into a greater perspective about Sambo, as I did with Josh Barnett, and the style of catch wrestling, why it worked against Dean Lister and what the future of it may be. You have to have a broader sense of things to understand exactly the specifics, but I can't just go, hey, let's talk about Sambo. I need a question I'm answering. So if you have a question that you'd like me to do it on, uh, I consider it. But it, the, the technique talk doesn't work in, like, hey, let's talk about judo. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I, did, I did want to Ryan Hall with um, the 50-50 guard. Could that work? Um, on on spinning kicks uh, with Henry Hooft. Um, on leg kicks with uh, Duke Rufus. All these different things. There, it's, a, it's a question of specifics. Let's see. Uh, Luke, I cannot figure out why UFC 177 did better numbers than UFC 174. UFC 174 had Rory McDonald versus Tyron Woodley, Ryan Bayer, um, Andre Olovsky, while 177 had Danny Castillo and Tony Ferguson as the main event. I need to go back and look at what other things that were competing that night for people's um, opportunity cost time and finances. So there was one issue there about competition. I think secondly, still is the, the role of the headliner. Um, you know, I understand that Demetrius Johnson had in the Bagatino, Bagatino fight was like 
announced in advance, promoted in advance, and the fight went through as scheduled. But I even would submit to you still, he's maybe not the pay-per-view attraction that TJ Dillashaw is. The, the main event slot is so key. It's so key to promotional efforts, which is why I have some real questions about what they're going to do with the women uh, when the strawweight title comes into play. Because when you're the headlining of the card, it's not just you're the last fight of the night. You are such an advantage position for marketing and visibility and generating awareness and interest. Um, even if you have a very strong supporting cast. If, if there's no better example than UFC 178, I don't know what is. You got a ridiculous cast, uh, supporting cast, and yet it turns out that the fight may have done between, I think I, I read somewhere between 180 and 230,000 buys. Um, that's not a lot, and that sort of shows you that that leading position, that headlining spot, is so fundamentally critical to everything, even if you downplay it for other things. Um, you saw in the Embedded and in various marketing efforts that the McGregor Poirier fight just generated more interest. Okay, fine, yeah, of course. It did, but if it doesn't have that main event slot, it can't really affect things in the way that it could um, um, if it were. Fighter popularity. Luke, at MMA Infographic, he tweeted some interesting information regarding fighter popularity on Twitter for current UFC champions in each weight class. Interestingly, enough former UFC fighters, such as Rampage and Tito Ortiz, have more followers on Twitter than any UFC champions other than Jones and Rousey. In fact, they both have more followers individually than Demetrius Johnson, TJ Dillashaw, Pettis, and Hendricks combined. Did the UFC make a mistake in not holding on to older stars who still have drawing power that could be filling some early main card slots on pay-per-views instead of putting in fighters that most have not heard of? That is not the analysis to take away. The analysis to take away is, here's one thing the UFC is very, very good at, and this is why you see a lot of enthusiasm around a lot of their recent efforts and why they want to go global. The UFC is very good at waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, doing nothing, and then all of a sudden, barnstorming a place. Geographically speaking, you know, waiting for things and conditions to be right, and they lay the groundwork. So, for example, Latin America, all the waiting they did to get the right television deal. I mean, this is deft work that they do. I mean it in the highest way. I, I truly respect them for this. They, they wait, and then they love to just, boom, barnstorm a place, you know, and they get on TV, and they hold shows, and you look at the gate receipts, you're like, god damn, those are huge numbers, right? I think one challenge that the UFC faces, both domestically and abroad, is maintaining interest, is, okay, so you're seeing it play out in the United States. They can't, they, they had all those struggles, they spent $40 million in the U.S., and they got an ultimate fighter, and kaboom, it had this effect. And for a while, they had this long stretch. Remember, we talked about it last week, the Ultimate Fighter era to the, uh, to the end of the Brock Lesnar era. That's the real golden spot for the United States and North America. Um, but the question is, once that initial phase of stars that came out of the boom period go away, can you fill it in with another series of stars? And I think that's been an ongoing challenge that they haven't quite answered yet. They've got some people, Rousey, Velazquez, We'll see what happens with McGregor. You can list some other names. Weidman, certainly an interesting character in that regard, too. Although not to the same level. But, you know, there's just some other guys. But they just don't have that huge cadre of stars they used to have before that fans seem deeply attached to. That part seems to be missing a little bit. And how they replace it, I don't know. So when you go, to, when you go global, you're going to see a lot of the same thing. When they're going to first go to a country, there's going to be hot enthusiasm. And that will last a while. It's not a short while, six months a year. It's several years. But then when that begins to wane, 
How do they then sustain that? How do they then rebuild that? I'm not so clear there's a lot of answers to that. Not saying they can't, not saying they won't. Just saying that's been a continuous struggle of theirs. And I think that's one reason why they're going global. I think they sense in North America, they're here, they're firmly established, they're going to make a lot of money here, but maybe they've kind of sort of got as far as they're going to go in this territory for the time being. Always understanding things can be bigger with Conor McGregor blows up or something like that, or Brock Lesnar comes back. But for the most part, they're in a holding pattern, I think, here. Let's try some other place. We have a product that is mobile, much more so than the NFL. Um, economic conditions are changing in a lot of places. We can sweeten the pot, blah, blah, blah. But once that initial period of enthusiasm is over, and when I say initial, I mean, you know, long, it can be long-standing in time. But once that's over, can they replace it with a second generation of enthusiasm? I think that is the critical question for Zufa moving forward. Because they can expand globally, but then how do you sustain things after the initial period of all the people that everyone got attached to move on? And, if, and, and, and once that's gone, how do you then have a second wave of effort that can match the same level of intensity that the first one can? Maybe you can't. Maybe you have to just sort of get accustomed to the idea that everything will regress to a much more uh, lower level uh, uh, when it's all said and done in 20 or 30 years. I don't know the answer, but I think that's what you should focus in on. I think they've probably gotten about as far as they're going to get in the United States with, you know, some exceptions abounding. Conor McGregor could blow up. You get the idea. But the sport is basically at the level it's going to be. Um, and so they want to expand globally because there's other markets to penetrate. Fair enough. I understand that. But then they're going to face those same challenges, it seems to me, in other places. Because I think they're feeling that in Canada right now, too. So that, to me, is the critical question here. It's They can break into a market and they can crush it. You know, and they did that in the United States, and they could, and, and they're, it sounds like they're going to do that in Ireland here. And we'll see what happens in Sweden, although the ticket sales were lower. Gustafsson wasn't on those cards, but okay, that's fine. Um, I don't think enthusiasm is waning in Sweden just yet, but we, uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But that's going to happen. They, they are great at creating an initial boom with a lot of people that they're attached to. But when they move on and those things start to change, how do you then resustain that enthusiasm? I think that part has been a major challenge for them. And frankly, if they can't do it, I don't know who can, because they do it better than anybody else. Uh, let's take one more here. Out of the Ultimate Fighter 20 and Tough Latin America, which one do you like more? That's an easy one. Tough Latin America is fun, but it's basically a big prop up for the Mexican um, push that they're doing, which is fine. Um, but Freddy Serrano, who's my guy who I've interviewed on this website, he's going to drop down to flyweight anyway. I thought he got robbed in this fight. The level of talent is much lower. It's a much more perspective-building thing. In terms of fighters who are ready-made, top of the food chain, Tough 20 is just so far and away ahead of that. If you don't like the antics with Tough 20, which I know some people don't, that's fine. Not everyone does. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But just for me, what I like, the level of talent is significantly higher on Tough 20. So that would be the direction that I would go. All right, let's see if I have anything else on Twitter here real quickly, then, we, then we'll just bust out. Um, is the super fight with Cruz the only really marketable fight for Demetrius? I don't see what else he can do. So it says two w DWIs within a year. Yeah, dude, AA wouldn't be the worst idea. Well, getting help wouldn't be the worst idea. I don't know that Alcoholics Anonymous is the default place for help. Um, okay. Uh, by the way, uh, it's not the case that bars are added as 10 or 15 viewers. It's just one. But that's the case for every pay-per-view, not just the ones that sell 100,000, the ones that sell a million. 
All right. <clears throat> With that said, please follow me on Twitter, at SBN Luke Thomas. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it greatly. This will be on iTunes in a couple of hours. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher, whatever tickles your fancy. Um, there'll be coverage of Bellator on Friday, World Series of Fighting on Saturday, uh, and lots of features and stuff for you to enjoy. Email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com. Share this video as far and wide as you possibly can. I appreciate you joining me again, and until next time, stay frosty.